Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hooper. Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? I'm here with my guest, Jane, and we're going to be, uh, yeah, led into her story of abuse. I'm really looking forward to this episode. I have just been like meeting a lot of different survivors through, uh, through networking and and mainly through Instagram. And uh, so we've been kind of in contact on Instagram for a little bit. And so I don't know your full story though. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more of it. Yeah. So, um, I'm a 40-year-old survivor. I met my abuser when I was in school, when I was 21 years old, uh, my fourth semester of university. Um, Very elusive creature on campus, five years older than me. Um, Through the years, I would say we stayed connected as social media friends for probably um, 11 years before we became romantic. So I always found him to be, um, again, arms, arms length across places, states. We, we knew each other through friends and connections and social circles, but I never lived in the same place as him. I didn't know intimate details about his life. And um, he would always call me his best friend, even though I lived in, we lived across the country. So, you know, reflecting back on some of the red flags, how, how the relationship moved so quickly, um, I, I didn't really understand that those were very, um, like, core pieces of the abuse cycle, mm-hmm. how I was pulled in so quickly into this relationship. But um, he was very good at keeping a persona. I always say I met um, I met the con artist in the art department because I was an art student at my university, and he was always around the art department, and he identified as a certain artist. But when I tell people the story, it's like, oh, yeah, I met the con artist in the art department. So, um, so yeah, 2000... Well, I won't give you years here. Ten years after university, we reconnected in a different state. Um, I was on the West Coast. He was in the Middle Coast, and I'm uh, from an area in the Midwest. So I went to go visit a girlfriend in um, one of the mountain states for her birthday from from the West Coast. And I went into town for the weekend. And we had a very brief romantic encounter, um, sexual encounter. We had never had sex before. Um, I was a really, really good girl growing up. I didn't have sex till I was 22 years old. I waited, you know, I was very proud of that. I waited till after university to um, be with somebody who was my first boyfriend. And um, that was pretty hard growing up with like a conservative Christian family where I was 
determined to marry my first love and my first boyfriend that I had sex with. Um, that did not happen. So kind of like went into my 20s with this kind of disappointed, you know, uh, lens on being with, you know, a husband or a romantic partner, because I always thought it would be like this storybook romance. And so I'd say a lot of my 20s, I was disillusioned by men in general, and kind of my first abusive relationship, my first boyfriend out of college was a heavy drinker, Irish family, lots of drinking involved. And um, I think women... I'm so I I'll say I'm 40 years old. Women um don't really understand the nuances of emotional abuse early on, especially when you go to school and you're exposed to parties and fraternities and you know whatever college experience you have and then you um you know you kind of become accustomed to this male behavior without realizing, you know, verbal abuse or emotional abuse. So I had built up this tolerance to um, not really having strong boundaries with the males in my life mm -hmm. based off that first relationship. Um, back to back to my husband. So um, we had this very brief weekend visit. Um, the the morning after we had slept together, I was getting text messages that I was, after all of these years, I was going to be his wife. And this was our future together. And um, he just couldn't believe it took him so long to realize that I was the one. And it was the first time anyone had told me these things that I thought I wanted to hear as like a little girl, you know, this this man finally sees me, you know, immediately for being like the best girl on the planet. And um, I felt like, you know, special and it wasn't just a hookup. Maybe the time I had invested in this, um, you know, obscure relationship long distance that it was meant to be right. You know, this is the, this is the, um, the, dream, I guess, that most girls want to live. So out of curiosity, I allowed this relationship to continue. So as soon as I was getting these messages, getting onto the airplane, going back to the West Coast, um, when am I going to see you again? When? Let's, let's see each other in two weeks. So he immediately booked a trip out to the west coast where i was living we had a weekend visit to the desert again a romantic rendezvous mm -hmm. um not really listening to my gut instincts of you know this is not really this this connection i thought was always there isn't real i'm not really feeling it you know it was still again a curiosity um after that weekend, he said, I'm going to see you in two weeks. So I booked another trip back to the mountain state where he was living. And that weekend, I got pregnant with my child. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember we 
the first night I got there, you know, we, we had sex. It was not love. It was sex. And the next morning we went out to lunch with some people from the past that were from university days. And I remember him banging his hand into his fist and saying, I'm about to make me some gypsy babies. And we all went like, what are you talking about? And Mm -hmm. it was so aggressive. And I was not prepared to hear that word come out of his mouth. Like, I don't want to have a baby with this person, but I got pregnant that weekend. And Mm -hmm. so it was like part of his plan. Um, Again, I take full responsibility. Um, One of my girlfriends had, we had done her little, you know, ovulation app where we, before I left for the weekend, she said, okay, well, you're past your pregnancy point, but be careful. And, um, you know, looking at my cycle now, it was two weeks and two weeks and, you know, a month had gone by and I was right on time. So again, being naive and not ever having been pregnant before my whole life, um, it moved very quickly. So within, from August to October, I was pregnant. Hmm. And this was over a, a span of three weekend dates. I mean, imagine having three dates yeah. and then being pregnant. So um, the morning I found out I was pregnant, I didn't take the time to sit with myself as my adult self and say, is this, do I want to involve this person? Do, you know, again, I thought I knew who I was dealing with because of this persona he was, he had created for himself. A lot of people knew him as a nickname that was not even his real name. So he went by, you know, like Mr. Candy, let's call him that. (laughs) And when I found out I was pregnant, I said, you know, I can't call you Mr. Candy. What's your real name? Mm -hmm. Because our child's not going to be calling you the candy man, whatever. So, um, that's how much I knew about him. I knew very little about him. And at that point he said, well, let's do this together. Let's have this baby. And I want you out here by November 1st. And within two weeks, I packed up my beach house of seven years. I left a group of my circle of girlfriends, um, you know, a life I had created. I had a, a career. I had a lucrative career. Um, I was heading into my thirties. So it was that late twenties questioning of like, what am I doing with my life? Would, everyone will go through this. I would say every five to 10 years in your life. So at, from 20 to 30, that's a big change in your life. And um, I was 29 years old and I said, I guess I'm going to try doing this. So I packed my stuff up and I was in the mountain state on Halloween, a day before November 1st. He said he wanted me there November 1st. And so um, the, the really profound statement that stuck with me is when I found out I was pregnant, I said, you know, you clipped my wings. He said, damn straight I did. 
Hmm. Wow. And yeah, that was, that was like, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie Maleficent. I, I can identify with her. It's like a Disney character, but I feel a lot like her sometimes where he just like took my wings away. Hmm. So I let this person take full control of my life and I was pregnant and I was afraid. And so when I got to this place in the mountains, uh, November 1st or Halloween by November 11th, I had an engagement ring. And at Christmas, I we were meeting each other's families, and um, it was it was really fast. So, I feel like every episode that I listen to, um, like each story, I like resonate in different ways, and I think that that's why, <clears throat> like hearing stories, even though I've processed most of my trauma and a lot of people who are survivors have processed it. And I know you've been out for a while, but it's like always crazy to me how like when I hear someone else's story, it like pulls out parts of like my own understanding of my own story. And I think something you said that like really struck a chord with me is like you were like uh, saying how you feel like he clipped your wings because um, like I know for me and then other people I've talked to as well. like a lot of us had like a lot of dreams and visions and we were like very full of life. And I think that that can be really attractive, right? That's an attractive thing for someone to be full of life and have dreams and visions. Um, And I think that sometimes it's seen as a challenge to others, but when like being like when having a child that changes you forever being a mother, um, changes you forever. And, uh, I think for me, like when I was listening to you talk, like just reminded me, I think of just in my own story, like I also got pregnant pretty early on and I didn't want to get pregnant. Like I wanted to, I always had this timeline of like, I would be, have a kid when I'm like 29. For some reason that was always like the age was 29. And I was 21 when I got pregnant and I didn't, choose that. Like he didn't want to use condoms and very like adamant about like not using protection. And, um, you know, then I got pregnant and I remember grieving, um, not that, you know, that my child is like the best thing that's ever happened to me, but I wasn't ready to be a mom yet. And like, I didn't want to be a mom yet. And now my child is like the best, uh, greatest gift that I, I mean, I would never change a single thing. But, um, like what you were saying about how he clipped your wings and he's like, um, like damn straight. I did. It's like, they know they, he knew and it just, yeah, he knew his, his sister had come to me the first, actually. So the first holiday I met his family, his sister, who was a year older than I am approached me and said, you know, he really thought you were going to get pregnant that weekend. And hearing that I thought, well, wow, I didn't think I was going to get pregnant that weekend. So was this planned or, you know, again, it's the questions of like reflection. Maybe this was part of the plan, but I wouldn't change it either because my child is um, here for a reason. And I believe our children will be, you know, 
forging a path for the future of this planet, you know, and they've been brought to us for a reason for us to even have this discussion, right? So they have strong mothers, but, um, you know, in hindsight, seeing uh, seeing how quickly it moved and how much I just gave over the control, my wheels to him and, um, you know, we even used my car, like he didn't really have a great car and he would drive in the car and I would ask him not to drive the way he, he would drive aggressively in my car. And it felt like, you know, it's very personal to me. Like, I know now that that's part of what abusers do. They, you, they'll abuse you in the car and um, scare you. And all of these things that are just in hindsight, so crystal clear. I, again, you know, writing a book about abuse 2020 hindsight, it's um, something I plan to do in the future when I have um, settled, you know, my story a little bit more, but, um, but I think it's, it's for people who are like listening and like our, like your story, like this portion of your story and mine, um, like mothers who speak, who, um, have been in that situation where, you know, potentially it was in their plan to like impregnate somebody and, 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 trap them. Uh, I think it's just important for people who are listening on the other end. Like if you choose to like have sex with somebody and it's early on and you don't know them that well, like make sure that like you are, make sure that you have those boundaries set in place, like whatever it is, like birth control or condoms or whatever you need, because this is actually like a real thing. Like people, people actually like are that sick and twisted that they would try to get you pregnant to like trap you to them. Like that's a thing. And it's happened to many, many women. And so I think like on the other end, children are a gift and like you're a fierce mom because of it. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean that like we can't. hundred percent. Women have to be fully responsible for their own bodies and, yeah. you know, insisting on someone using a condom I don't even think that's enough. I think you need to be fully prepared that someone might not actually listen to you. So um, in reflection, that is just irresponsible and naive um, at that point in my life to have trusted someone Mm -hmm. when it did seem like it might have been part of a plan. Again, it's speculation, but um, it sounded like he had discussions with his family about it before that happened. So um, my child was born, you know, 11 months after I'm, no, I'm sorry. I'm not doing, I'm not a mathematician. I'm honors English here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, so I got, I'm saying 11 as in November was the 11th month of the year. Um, child was born the next year and, um, my birth was amazing. I had a completely natural birth. Um, it moved me to be a doula. So I do doula work um, to empower other women to have natural childbirths. Um, that my child's birth was the most amazing part of being a mother and it empowered me to be a, a strong woman. And the day that my child was born was the day that the abuse became really, really bad. Um, not physically, this, this person was not physical with me up until I left. Um, but for the most part was controlling, um, 
I had a little bit of complications with my birth. My mother flew out on a red eye, got there. And within several hours, I had my, my little person, but, um, I had complications and he was filling out the birth certificate and I was kind of in a lucid state. I was on a catheter. I could not um, eliminate. So I was kind of bedridden and he was filling out our child's paperwork. And my mother noticed that it was just his name on the birth certificate. And so my mother advocated for me and um, that created a lot of tension Um he was very aggressive, very rude to my mother, um, mean to my mother. My mom was supposed to stay. My family lives 15 hours from the place where I was living in a car. So she was on the plane and um, my mother was supposed to stay for a month. And within 10 days, he insisted that she leave mm. and that um, she was interrupting our family's time together as a new family. and you know, as a postpartum mother, you need the physical support. And mm -hmm. I, um, I was very scared to have a baby. So the fact that my mother was being forced out of my home was devastating. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I had left all my friends on the West coast and I was in, um, a mountain town alone with his friends and acquaintances. And it was a very, it was me and this baby. So that was really, the experience was, this is, I have a noisy cat. Um, <laughs> Love she it. was there. She's a mountain cat as well. And I think she was traumatized by this person, but um, mm. yeah. Um, having my mother being forced out of our house, my dad flew in and took her home after 10 days. And then I was alone. And that was in the summer. And then shortly after that in that was that was like midsummer and by september i had attended a friend's wedding and we got into a really big fight about not being married after i came home from this wedding and he put so much pressure on me to set a, a wedding date because i had this engagement ring of course 10 days after i got there mm -hmm. so why haven't we set a, a wedding date and so I think I, you know, I'd had a couple glasses of wine and I said, well, let's, you know, do it for the end of this year. We set it for a December wedding date. And that year was 2012. That was supposed to be the end of the, the world. If you remember the Mayan calendar was supposed to be over and we were supposed to have like an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And so I set the wedding date for the day after the apocalypse, just in case, mm -hmm. um, the 20 wow. December 21st was supposed to be the end of the world. So I set the wedding date for December 22nd hmm. and here we are. It's 2022. My 10th wedding anniversary is coming up and, um, I'm still married to this person. I can't get divorced. Hmm. Um, I left him in 2016. Oh, wow. So I filed for divorce in September of 2016. And I'm still married. I cannot get a divorce from this person due to custody. Um, he has our child. And that is um, the next part of my story. Oh. Where 
really quick. So um, I just want to stop here and then backtrack for a second. So um, I know that you said that the abuse was like a lot of control. Um, mm-hmm. Did you like realize specifically that something was wrong? I'm sure there were lots of times where you knew something was wrong, but where was the point that you realized like something is truly not right here? And then if you could just highlight like three experiences while you were like in the same place as him, like that happened, I guess that stand out to you that you would like to share. Um, so, so I actually left him three times before, before, you know, filing for a divorce. The first time it was, um, he had been going through my phone and texting friends and specifically an ex-boyfriend that I was still friends with from the West coast and pretending to be me. Um, as soon as I found him going through my phone, he called me really horrible names that I was a fucking whore and I could go stand on the corner and, um, was extremely verbally abusive. Um, again, a lot of, um, the word, the word I want to use is a provocation and a lot of provocation on his part to instigate fights. And it would always be, um, you know, a one-up conversation. It was, it was never, um, it was a lot of tension, a lot of one-upping conversations. But the first time I left, he had been in my phone and um, I got on a plane. I went home for the mo- for a whole month and then I came back and things got better. And then by my child's second birthday, the, again, my parents came into town. This was always a huge problem. Anyone visiting, um, it disrupted his little bubble of, you know, the three of us. So, um, the day that I left for the second time and left the state was three days after our child's second birthday. And, um, he basically started a verbal, verbal argument with my parents told my dad, my mom wanted to divorce him. My parents had been married for 34 years, 35 years. And my dad was like, what is, what is he talking about? And um, then he was screaming at my parents to get out of his house, even though it was our house. I mean, our house was full of my stuff. He had moved all of my stuff from the West to this mountain town. And, um, he said to my mother's face, I don't just hate you. I fucking hate you. Big fat wildebeest. And it, it was so heartbreaking to hear this person speak to my parents. So I've, I've never heard words come out of anyone's mouth. Like these are my precious parents that have taken care of me my whole life and protected me. And here I'm living with a man who is just brutalizing them. You know, and that's where, again, the, um, we're talking about control, but the verbal abuse, the mental, emotional, the amount of heartbreak that goes into verbal abuse, I would always say to my mom, I wish he would just hit me because Mm -hmm. then I would be able to prove that this is happening. Um, so I called a lawyer and he was insisting my parents get out of the house and they would need to go stay in a hotel. I said, you get out of the house. 
um, he did leave the house. He, he left the house with our baby for four hours and I didn't know where our child was. So in the interim, I was calling a lawyer. I said, this is happening. This situation's happening. And this woman said, get on a plane with your parents and a ba- and your baby and do not come back here. Mm-hmm. So I had two cats. I had all my belongings, my furniture, our, you know, everything I'd collected from my previous life. This was my home and he was living in it basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just left it all and went home with my parents. So that was a whole entire summer where I did leave and he flew back to try to convince me that he was sorry and he apologized to everyone. And um, again, I let him back in to our life. He moved in with my parents for a couple months. Then we moved into uh, the city in the Midwest. We moved into an apartment building and then the abuse continued. Mm -hmm. Um, The control, I would go visit my parents who lived within an hour of our apartment. It was about an hour drive. So it was still far enough to where he had us isolated, right? It wasn't like I was next door to my mother or five minutes away from my mother, you know, where a lot of people, I think a lot of modern couples forget that once they have, um, you know, depending on your upbringing, this is not everybody, but I came from a very close family And something that he would always comment on while we were friends before we became, you know, romantic and pregnant, he would visit with my family and say, you have the best family. I, I love your family. They're so close. And it's true. I I do have the best family. And, um, once he was a part of our family, he hated the fact that we were so close because he couldn't have me alone Mm -hmm. because that's not how I lived my life. So, so I just want to take a break for a minute and, um, think about how bad things became. Um, it was probably about two years that we tried to make this apartment living situation happen. Um, extreme gaslighting, extreme gaslighting where he would say in front of our our child you belong in a loony bin and that's when I was getting strong and saying no I need to leave like we need to end this and we need to to, you know figure out how we can get divorced peacefully and Mm -hmm. he would um, proceed to gaslight me even worse and say you know you're totally insane I had a therapist I was seeing a therapist Um, nobody ever brought up the subject of verbal and emotional abuse during this time. So I really had, it was a foreign concept to me, Mm. all of the, the mental battery that I was enduring was, um, not, it was not articulated as a language, you know, I, it was just something I was feeling, but I didn't know how to actually say like, this is happening to me. So, um, I would bring up the subject of divorce. You know, if we get divorced, your child's not going to see you till she's 13 years old. Mm -hmm. And if you hear that, 
statement, that's a threat. Mm-hmm. That's not something a normal, healthy, you know, co-parenting couple or divorced couple would discuss. You don't uh, threaten to not, you know, withhold a child. And this was a four-year-old baby at the time. My my child was four years old and he said, you're not going to see this baby till they're 13 years old. Hmm. And so that was very scary. If I left him again, I knew that that would be something I'd have to deal with. Um, So I'm trying to think here within that two years. Um, I had taken a trip to visit my friends on the West coast and left the baby with him. And that was in the spring. And by the summer, um, we had gone to a wedding. We got into a huge fight. That was probably the last real argument we got into before we came home and it was really bad. And within that month, um, my child and I were at the library and we checked out a DVD and we were driving home in the car from the library. And my child said, this DVD smells like penis. Hmm. And I said, what? This D- this smells like penis. I said, how would you know what penis smells like right. from daddy? So hmm. Pandora's box was, opened it it was uh you know not even real like what is how is what is happening right now um so when he came home from work that day I said you know something really weird they said something really weird today um this dvd smells like a penis and he picked our child up and took them out of the room and um came back in and that was the end of that. My, my brother at the time was like, this is really weird. Like this kids don't say stuff like this. I went to my therapist, my therapist said, find out, you know, if something happened because this is not a normal statement again, you know, living with someone who, um, was very good at being a charlatan and covering secrets up and, uh, manipulating grooming us really there was a lot of grooming that had been happening and I can talk about that in a little bit um so about a week after that first statement came out I had gone back to visit my parents an hour from the apartment and my father and my child and I were sitting on the porch and I said I want to ask you um how you know about that smell and they said well um, no, it was, when did you, when did you smell dad's penis? It was in, it was in the bathroom. Okay. Well, where was mom? You were in the state on uh, the West coast. Okay. Um, did anything else happen while you were in the bathroom? Yes. Um, dad touched his penis right here and pointed to private parts mm-hmm. and when these words came out, it was, um, my dad was hard of hearing, but he saw my face and he saw, I cried because it just, 
I couldn't believe those words were coming out of um, their mouth. Right. Um, and again, a four-year-old doesn't make this stuff up. Like this is not just, you know, I saw a fairy in the garden. Right. So when this first happened, we were actually waiting for him on the porch for him to come home from work. And as soon as he came up the porch, I, again, this is my husband. I'm not versed in domestic violence. Um, I said, let's go inside. I want to, we want to talk the three of us. I want to have a talk with us. Mm -hmm. So this is what our child just said. And he said to our baby, that didn't happen. Why would you say that? And they said, I don't know. And looked down like confused. So that was the first mistake is actually confronting the perpetrator when you're not supposed to do that. Mm. But um, you didn't know, like, you know, I, no, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know what to think. It was very confusing. Yeah. And that night he and I discussed it. He said, of course that didn't happen. Like, I don't know why they're saying this. And I said, I don't know why they're saying this either, but it's very confusing. And so um, we returned back to our apartment after being with our my parents for a day. Um, I did not drop the subject. I went to my therapist again, and she said, I'm going to report this to family services. Um, you need to find out if something happened right. instead of taking the responsibility as the professional and doing her job, she left it up to me. So within the, the month of that disclosure, the volatility became so, um, zero to 60, our child came back into the room and, and he said, you need to drop this. And I said, you need to leave and go to work. And he started chest butting me and punching his hands and saying, you better stop talking about this or I'll fucking hit you in your face. Um, I pushed him out of the apartment and then I called the police and that was, that was assault. You know, again, I didn't realize it, that I was being assaulted. He was, he's twice my size and he was chest butting me and spitting in my face and punching his hand. And, um, our baby was holding on to my leg while I called the police. It was horrible. And, um, that's when family services became involved. Um, they said to get an order of protection. I did not, I was afraid he would come home that night and kill us. So I had gone to the courthouse. I filled out order of protection paperwork because of the physical assault. And also I was scared that, you know, he would hurt the baby. Um, I never followed through with the paperwork. And then less than a month after that, um, I had come into the city to, so we, we basically moved out of the apartment and stayed with my parents within the, the hour drive. And there was one weekend, it was a Saturday where I was going to come into the city 
he was going to have a visit with our child while we were in this kind of imminent separation. I had not filed for divorce at this time. Um, and his brother was supposed to be with him while I went to a baby shower. And again, here, here's me not really understanding like that this actually happened. Mm -hmm. I was still on the fence. Like, did he, or did he not do this to our child? Because how could he do this? How could this possibly happen in front of me without me understanding? I, you know, he said it didn't happen. So I was not sure. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't feel safe, but I was still uncertain about what had happened. So I gave him a little bit of rope and said, well, maybe you and your brother can spend time with the baby while I go to this baby shower. And as soon as I got to the apartment, he was aggressive. Um, we were both in our pajamas. He put the baby in our stroller and tried to get past me and um, push through the apartment door. And I started calling the police. I started, he's trying to leave. There's an open family, there's an open child service investigation regarding sexual abuse. He's trying to leave with our child in their pajamas. And um, it was very scary because he would leave and turn the phone off. This is a control thing. He would do this and the other state as well, turn the phone off for like four hours and I didn't know where they were. So he'd be with the baby and I didn't know where they were. Yeah. Um, as a mom, like to not know where your kid is. And on top of that, like not know, not be able to trust that person. Like that's, it's like tormenting. Yeah, no, it is. It's tor It is tormenting and it's intentional terrorism. It's domestic terrorism. And that's how I refer to it because I'm still fighting this battle to present day. This was in 2016, you know, basically it started in 2011 and I'm still, you know, 10 years into a marriage where I've been separated for six, married for four, separated for six, and I cannot get away from my abuser. Um, so as soon as I was calling the police, he picked up the police, he picked up his phone again, twice my size, booming, uh, you know, baritone voice and, um, said, my wife is attacking me. You need to come here and arrest her. Um, so I took his phone instinctually and I just threw it on the ground. So that was, um, Darvo, right. Mm -hmm. So deny attack, reverse victim offender. I was trying to get help. Then he called and said, I was attacking him. The police mm -hmm. came. Of course I was emotional. I was crying in my pajamas. Um, he was cool and calm and collected with our baby holding our baby. Um, oh yeah. He did say, um, you tried, you probably wanted to abort our child while he was holding our child as a shield, a physical shield and saying these ver verbal abusive things to me while holding our child saying you wanted to abort this child. And, um, of course a four-year-old doesn't understand what abort means, but nonetheless, it was, um, traumatic. Mm -hmm. So the police handcuffed me in front of him and my child, and they took me to the hospital and I was brought into 
the emergency room where a psychiatrist reviewed me and I explained what was happening, Mm -hmm. how there was a, a, a disclosure of sexual abuse and I was trying to get help. And, you know, the, the whole like double down on the phone call and this male psychiatrist left the room. He came back in the room with um, domestic violence paperwork. He was crying. This man doctor was crying to me and said, I am so sorry that you were brought in here today. Mm-hmm. The wrong person was brought in here. Um, you are in trouble. You need help. Here is your paperwork and you need a safety plan. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time ever, Maya, that someone had given me paperwork where I lo- read through this document and everything on there was my life except for the physical yeah. violence. That's insane. Yeah. Text textbook. I mean, mm-hmm. like I was screaming out loud. Oh my God. I can't believe I've never seen this until now. It, black and white in the face. Mm-hmm. And so that was a Saturday. And on Monday I filed for a divorce. I was so scared. And, um, since then it's just been an ongoing saga. I think that story really quickly, that, that moment of like someone who validated your experience is really incredible, but also like someone who did their job, but also was aware of what abuse is. And I think that it's always like, I think all of us have like a moment where I think over time, like we're more open to the idea of like, something's not right, but like, almost like you can't put your finger on it. It's like a word that's on the tip of your tongue. And like, you can't remember the word. That's how I often felt with abuse. Like, because when they're not hitting you, especially like you don't have any proof to show that like you're being abused. And so it's like this feeling a lot, like, you know, that something's wrong it's on the tip of your tongue, but you can't quite verse like what is actually happening. And then once you finally realize, or someone presents to you, like the topic of like, actually like emotional and psychological abuse, I feel like it generally will like click together. And it's crazy. It's just, it's wild because I think it's just not talked about a lot. I think, um, psychological and emotional abuse can it like last week on the episode with um carolyn we talked about like how a lot of abuse like seems to like quote unquote live on the gray and so um a lot of people don't know like is this abuse or am i just being over dramatic is this control or are they just you know like am Mm -hmm. i just you know and so it's just often it's difficult to kind of like figure out what is actually happening and so um I think it's just crazy like to hear like the series of like the story happening and then that moment of like where he hands you those documents and you're like, I resonate with all of this, but he never hit me, you know, but that's like the one thing that everybody's waiting for or asking you has happened. But like, there's so much more to abuse than hitting like so much more. Oh, I mean, a hundred percent, you know, there even, but here's the thing. I mean, I had things that were happening to me that were abusive and I didn't understand it. This was just that it was the threshold that I walked through when I, someone who was professional, you know, recognized it, validated it. And it was since then, you know, things that I can reflect upon in the relationship where he would hold me in bed, would hold me and bind me and just not let me go where we would lay in bed and maybe like watch a 
TV or something. And then um, we'd be going to bed and he would hold me and not let me go. And I would say, please, like, let me go, let me go. And he would hold me tighter and I'd have to kick him off of me. And it was really weird. It, mm -hmm. it was really, really weird where it was, um, you know, again, it's not getting hit, but you're being controlled and you're being gaslit to where you know something's wrong, but you're not sure what's wrong. And then you start to question yourself and think, am I, am I just being dramatic? Am I, why do I feel so bad? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I always say that the lucky ones are the, these women that actually do get hit and have physical evidence of their abuse mm -hmm. or it's on the news and they can say like, this actually did happen to me because the subtle insidious forms of emotional, psychological abuse are, it is gaslighting and crazy making. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then you think about like, you know, you don't, you walk out that door and you're never the same person again. You look at every relationship you've known and wonder like, did they experience this or, or you know, you see it in other people. I do remember though, the wedding that I, that we had attended probably the month before for our child um, disclosed that she was being sexually abused. I had a girlfriend at this wedding asked me if I was being abused because we got into this horrible fight at the rehearsal dinner and I was crying and he got up and was really dramatic and in front of all of my friends um one of my friends that I was sitting next to said are you being abused and it was very you know cut and dry and right. that was the first time I actually thought like I don't know am I mm. is that what this is because I'm not sure what this is but I feel horrible Mm. Wow. So, and her funny, her mother is like a fam MFT, a marriage family therapist. Um, so she she was aware enough to see it, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, just the control and the um, the psychological battery really wears you down yeah. to where you you're just trying, I know, I know I gave up at some point and I would just stop talking at first when we were first early on in our relationship, he'd say, I love that sexy attitude. He would say that to me all the time. I love that sexy attitude. And I thought, I don't want to have an attitude. I don't want it to be a sexy attitude. I want to be happy. And this is not happiness. This is very frustrating, but having an attitude. I mean, if you think about it, you know, if you're walking around with an attitude that there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so there was always something wrong with me. And, you know, then his friends were judging me like she's in a bad mood all the time. But I mean, I witnessed the verbal abuse with his entire family. He would drive the family's van with like five people in the car and scream at everyone. And I don't know how. I mean, they, I do know how, because they've enabled him to get away with everything he's doing to us presently, um, making excuses and not having the language to identify, um, the behavior of a bully and someone who's controlling.
Yeah. Um, when did you like, so I know that you have explained like kind of a series of like the abuse and I think where you realize like, okay, am I being abused? I know something's not right and I don't know what it is, but I'm more open to the idea of it. Um, what happened once you realized, so I know that this doctor, he, you know, was like the wrong person has been brought in today. Um, what kind of like, what happened like after this point? Cause I know where you're at just from what we've talked about now and what the current circumstances are. Um, but like, what's the timeline from that moment to now? Like how many years has that been or months? And then like, what's been happening since then? So the doctor who diagnosed the domestic violence, um, there were several DCFS reports of ongoing sexual abuse with our child. And as you know, the family uh, protection system is really upside down. Um, CPS doesn't really do their job well. They're overloaded caseloads. Um, my child's been called a credible witness by over a dozen doctors and nurses, and um, they've reversed the allegations and said that I have coached my child to believe that they were being abused despite credible, objective hospital reports and uh, victim-sensitive interviews. Um, he sexually assaulted our child in between the time of um, the doctor giving me domestic violence paperwork till present day. Um, she was in the hospital. Sorry, they were in the hospital. Uh, bleeding, bruised, and told the nurse, my daddy does this to me and please don't tell my mother because she'll be upset. Um, the police never did their job. They never followed up with the doctors and nurses who saw our child and um, he paid off someone $6,000 to say that they were present on the weekend when in fact they had not been there. Um, so many, many factors have come into play with this very complicated situation, but um, basically I've been held in another court in the child protective court for three and a half years. And my husband has had temporary custody of our child while I've gone through this um, sham of a trial where they left out all of the evidence, all the hospital reports. And um, even the caseworker in their group who said my child was a credible witness, they omitted that person's name. They took the, like the eighth of a pie, you know, there's a whole pie on the table. They, they cut a piece of the pie and gave it to another um, professional in the area who assessed that based off that very limited scope of information that I was coaching my child to make up these allegations. Um, the court has basically, um, you know, we're not supposed to use parental alienation, but the court has alienated my child from their, my maternal, you know, her maternal family for three and a half years. 
So I know that people who are listening um, are probably asking like, how, how? Um, And I know that the more that I have uh, delved deep into the domestic violence, domestic survivors like world, I uh, meet more and more uh, moms who have, and who are currently in this exact situation. And I think the question that a lot of people are going to have is like, how is this possible? Like, how could something like this be happening and uh, justice not be served? What would you say to somebody who asks that question? Um, I would say, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I mean, I would say, first of all, look at who's dropped the ball in the past on, um, you know, saying this isn't someone who's capable of doing this, whether it's their, their family or their lawyer, or, I mean, a lot of it is just legal, um, networking to get out of a situation like this, but, um, it's happening to so many mothers and, you know, the, the big thing is look at the person who's, um, the, alleged abuser and see how much they're actually talking about the allegations against them. You know, how many people have stood in front of them so they don't have to talk to the authorities. I have nothing to hide. I have stood by my child as an advocate and literally merely repeated what has been told to me happened to them. And this person has a criminal defense attorney, has paid people off, uh, has pled the fifth in criminal investigations and refuses to speak to authorities. And um, I think really it on the, on the higher level of what's happening is society doesn't want to look at these males as perpetrators because it's a really ugly truth it's hard to imagine a father abusing their child especially sexually Mm -hmm. um i did not grow up with an experience like that so you know for for me the concept was completely foreign um what to hear a child disclosing sexual abuse it's really like uh foreign language so to navigate that that unknown territory you know there's no there's no map you just try to reflect upon you know what did i miss here what um how could this have happened um i think i was just gonna say like i think what's um what's really like ugly about this situation is that I think um, I've, I've interacted with like so many moms who um, have lost, who like the, the sexual abuser has the child that like, I'm, it's terrifying like to speak out and it shouldn't be like that, but it's, I'm starting to see this like series of like women who are without their children because they said he sexually molested, you know, the child. And then they go around and say, well, she's just crazy or she's just, you know, vindictive, making it up. 
Right. And like some people like it just it's so um when but actually we- the authorities gave him the platform to be before he started inducing other people's names. Well, maybe this person did something. Well, maybe this person did something. But once DCFS became involved, they gave him the platform that I was coaching our daughter, which once he started that, I knew Maya, I knew that he did it after he started that platform. That's when I was like, all right, this definitely happened because he didn't even have the brains to think of this before. And now that CPS is involved and they gave him this platform, he's run with it. See, but here's the hardest truth that I'll be so honest, like, uh, is like it, even if he admitted it, it would not be enough, Jane, because like, for some reason, like, it's like, it's almost like they need a child to like die or they like need like some total semen on, they need semen on their skin. Yes. Literally. Because, because our child did not have DNA on their skin when they were in the hospital, they could not go after that person, but she had bruises all over her pubic region. She was bleeding from her bottom. She had bite marks on her thigh. She told the nurse explicitly what happened to her, what night it happened, what the details. Okay. And then said, don't tell my mommy because she'll be upset. Mm -hmm. So I had a doctor and nurse sit me down and tell me what had been happening. And then we were transferred to a hospital where the physical evidence corroborated the statement, the credible statement that my child had made where even their caseworker said this child is credible. And because he paid for an alibi, the the weekend, the night specifically that my child said this happened, um, they did not press charges. Mm-hmm. And they continued to have supervised visitation. Um, and every time, you know, every couple months, my child would come home with a bloody bottom. And the supervisor said, well, I didn't see anything happen, which if you understand the nuances of child abuse, I mean, there's so many different things that could happen in front of a group of people. I mean, there's people who are abused in a room of people on, you know, it's all the time. Um, So then they said, well, if we can't prove that he's doing this, then she must just be making it up. And as you know, you're you're not making it up. You're literally just trying to protect your child. And um, it it makes no sense that they would somehow rationalize handing a child back over to the perpetrator. It really, I, it is, um, it's got to be some like deeply evil patriarchal. I don't, I, I really don't know what to say. I mean, I think it's just it's like at this point like I I just don't know I I didn't know that your story like I know that we had messaged back and forth but I I think I forgot that that was like a part of your story um and I feel like it's just like it's like mind-blowing to me um 
And I think a lot of people like listening are probably going to be like, I just don't know how that, how that can happen or how, like, I feel like there's this misunderstanding of like, oh, well, like if she doesn't have her kid, not you, but like moms in general, like if they don't have their kid, like, then what did they do wrong? And it's like, no, actually like the system's very corrupt. And like, uh, I see a lot of good mothers, fierce mothers who have been abused and who don't have their children. Um, and to other people, it's like, they don't understand it, but I, I've started like over the last year, I've seen just a pattern of so many people lose their kids. It's like absolutely terrifying. Um, it's terrifying. It's also in, um, a terrifying way, hopeful because it's becoming such an issue where people are actually paying attention and noticing that this is not just, you know, an isolated incident. It's becoming more of an epidemic. I mean, it has been an epidemic, but it's becoming so, um, normal that people are talking about it and hopefully, you know, understanding like connecting connecting each other and connecting the stories and realizing that this is a huge problem that needs to change um people will hopefully you know educate themselves on the nuances of domestic violence being more about power and control you know especially when children are involved it's really the best way to hurt a mother is to hurt their child and um you know, if he couldn't control me, he could control our child. I, I'm not sure because again, you know, talking to different experts, there is, there is apparently a difference between an abusive man versus a pedophile, you know, where pedophiles are genuinely just attracted to children, but a father who might be a sociopath would sexually abuse their child just to get back at the mother. And I don't know what the difference is. I just know that I do believe what my child told me to be true because, um, oh, actually, this is a really important part of the, the backtracking into when I said I needed to go on a trip and visit friends and kind of reconnect with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a neighbor in our apartment building who came to me a year after the allegations of sexual abuse came out. And this neighbor said to me, I really need to have a talk with you. There's something that's been haunting me and um, I need to get it off my chest. So remember when your your child said that something happened? Well, there was one weekend where you were on a trip to the West Coast to visit your friends. And my child and I went to the door to see if your child could have a play date. And your husband answered the door. And it was like, I interrupted something. I said, okay, well, this is vague. What do you mean you interrupted something? You need to be specific. Like, you know what has been said. Now tell me what you're talking about. And she said, well, it was like, I felt like there was some sexual abuse happening. Really? Okay. So explain this to me. Well, his face was red and your child was crying and begging for my child to come and take a nap with them. And they didn't want to be alone with their dad. And basically she had interrupted whatever he was doing to our child. Um, And my little person was asking for help and this woman did not help them. 
And that was a year after the fact. And I called the police detective. I said, this is um, a witness. Well, did they actually witness the abuse happening? That's not enough. Yeah. You know, that wasn't enough. So that witness who witnessed something going on, witnessed a crying child, just, you know, um, in distress, Mm -hmm. that wasn't enough for a police officer to interview that witness. Yeah. It's not enough. No. And unfortunately, you know, even if there is physical evidence, um, bruising, blood, if there's no DNA on, you know, I had given my child a bath the night before and we went to the hospital in the morning. It was like 11 o'clock at night and they were ready for bed. And I was not going to put them through going to the hospital in the middle of the night. So I waited till the morning. I called um, our pediatric team. I called my primary care doctor. It was Memorial Day weekend. It was a holiday. I said, you know, my child came home. They're bleeding from their bottom. I don't know what to do. Well, you know, three doctors said if that were my child, I would take them to the hospital. And so that's what we did. There was a full disclosure. um, And the police never interviewed one doctor or nurse from that incident. And even the caseworker who sat through the, so after that hospital incident, we had a victim sensitive interview. And in that interview, my child described extreme explicit abuse, very detailed, very articulate, um, knew exactly what had happened to them. And the caseworker said, your child's a credible witness. Still, nobody interviewed the doctor. The caseworker didn't interview the doctors and nurses who corroborated the physical evidence that went along with this disclosure. And um, basically the state has completely omitted that evidence in their case file against me. All of the hospital reports, all of the victim sensitive interviews uh, were omitted. And a doctor opined that I made up the story because the person who was paid off to lie about the weekend that they were not present with my child said that they were present. So not even aware that there was a perjured testimony. And since that uh, very, very negligent report was released, my child has been um, gate kept through an alternative court system in our state, which is the juvenile court system. And it's taken me three and a half years. They will not close the case because they're trying to monitor my therapy as, and find out if I confess to making a story up when in fact, um, you know, there's a network of GALs and lawyers that are working together to um, keep this case undercover. And specifically a GAL who had sat with me in the early stages of this divorce separation process and asked, do you think that he's going to do it again as in abuse our child? I said, what do you mean? Do I think he's going to do it again? I don't know. I've never experienced child abuse. Well, do you think, you know, I don't think he's going to do it again because he's been caught. So this person who made that confession to me I think is behind all of it because 
um, she's responsible for, you know, letting a child get reabused and her entire team is backing, covering for her. The fact that, you know, she allowed unsupervised visitation to continue and then our child was sexually assaulted and in the hospital. Yeah. And people just want to wash their hands of any sort of, they don't want to be associated with this kind of crime. Mm -hmm. how, how could you, how could a professional make a bad judgment call on someone? Right. So it must be, um, you know, the layman's fault. But as you know, um, victims are the best experts because we've lived it and everything has been used against used against me in my case. Um, things I told my husband in private, you know, that I never thought would come out have been used to blackmail me. I've lost friends. I've lost family for a period of time. Um, you know, fortunately we've, my family's strong enough to come back together. Um, secrets that I had shared with him um, were used against me to silence me, um, blackmail. I have many friends I've lost, but I have many really great friends that have stood beside me and are really my anchors and um, family members more than even my own family. So it's pretty bittersweet, you know, because you figure out really quickly who is on your team. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, like it's like people don't, people don't want to like, they just, this stuff's heavy and, and I don't think people want to like deal with it. Um, and so you really quickly learn like <laughs> who's like your true friend or who's just like around for fun and a good time. Um, but in, in that you also, I think if you're lucky, you make friends that are loyal and willing to like walk through something like this with you. Um, I don't, I don't know this story is, um, it's tough because like, I know that you don't have your child with you. And I think this is the first time that, that like I've ever I've actually interviewed some stories like, and I haven't aired them um, because this topic, um, I feel like I could do a whole series on it, to be honest, with the amount of moms who I know who are and have walked through this. Um, and I'm like, I'm going to air your story. Uh, it's just like, I don't know. Like, I think it's just... Um, a really tough subject. And I think it's, um, crazy. I think for people on the other end to like, to understand how something like this could be happening. Um, but it is happening and it's happening to so many moms and so many children and a lot of women who are in my DMS and it sucks. Mm. Like it's just, it sucks is not even the right word. I don't have the right word for it. Um, it, like makes me emotional. Um, yeah, because it's just, how could this happen to our babies? Yeah. And how someone could use, use the goodness of your heart to, you know, really for me to think about how 
much of a coward these men truly are to have to use their wives and children to throw them under the bus so that they are not held accountable for these crimes and how they can wake up every day and live with themselves and look in the mirror and know that that their children and their wives are telling the truth and they have to live with that. I know because I am religious, I pray to Jesus Christ every day to give me strength. Like, I don't know where God is in all of this, but like, I know that my soul is clean and light as a feather. And I don't have to live with a conscience of what's happened to our child, like what that reality feels like. And it's kind of like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Dead Man Walking. It's like an old movie with uh, Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn. Did you ever see that? Yeah, I haven't. Uh-uh. No. So she's like a nun that's working with this guy on death row who refuses to admit that he's killed this couple. And she works with him every day and every day. And up until, you know, they convict him of this murder. And finally, when he's like, on the electric chair he says you know I did it and I'm sorry and she said your soul is now clean that would be a lot easier for yeah our daughter said she was he did it in the bathtub he put his his penis in her hole and um she drew a picture in therapy of this little stick figure riding a bone boat and it was a straight up phallic phallic symbol like she drew this picture of her riding a bone boat and that's probably what he said it was I mean I witnessed him um he would like put her on his lap while he was going to the bathroom I walked in once and I'm like what are you doing like she was sitting on his lap while he was on the toilet and um that was really weird I mean he's a weirdo but um things that were that should have been like what is going on here? You know, I just thought we were like kind of a liberal family and not even liberal, just like there's no, no shame in having skin, you know, skin is an organ. Mm-hmm. Um, so to even use the word liberal, it wasn't even like a liberal thing. It was like, we lived in an apartment and, you know, if I got out of the bathtub and he got in the bathtub and our child happened to be in the bathtub, he'd finish giving her the bath, you know? and it wasn't like, if you're not thinking my husband likes children, you're not going to think it's something deviant because you're a good girl, you know, and your heart is pure. I never thought with criminal lens before this, where now I look at everyone and I don't know who likes little kids and who wants to rape little girls, you know, that's how I look at the world now. And it's sad. Yeah. I also recognize how, how many people are in controlling relationships who don't even have the language to articulate what's happening to them. And usually I just push a book on them, like read this book and maybe you'll help somebody in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, you know, I was in this doula workshop over the weekend and I introduced Jess Hill's book, see what you made me do to the group. I said, there are many abusive relationships that are very subtle where pregnant women don't know that they're being abused and you need to be aware of the subject going into a birthing room, especially, you know, if you don't know the clients you're working with, um, and a couple of the women came out and said, you know, there were, there have been situations where I thought something's not right about this. And a lot of people are just not aware of non-physical domestic abuse. And I call it domestic terrorism because we're living, you know, people are worried about immigrants coming into the country and it's like, no, the neighbor next door, you should be worried about when you hear someone yelling in the middle of the night, that's domestic terrorism you don't need to worry about border control at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, um, it's a blessing and a curse because we are now here to help others, you know, on this journey. And it's really, hopefully it's breaking the wheel. Mm. And I know that, Incestual abuse is probably the most taboo subject people would ever want to talk about because nobody wants to think that a father is capable of hurting their child. Mm -hmm. I mean, going into the community and the the circles of advocates, you know, uh, a father who loves their child doesn't hurt their mother, period, right? And then there's the next level of like, well, he, he's hurt me, but he's a good dad. No, that that's not okay. Right. You know? And I think for me, that's where my level of tolerance for the emotional and mental and verbal abuse was so like, I have a high pain, pain tolerance, but I never thought he would hurt our child. I never thought that. I thought, you know, he's really an asshole, but he's a good dad. And once that was out the door, that's when, um, you know, your mama bear mode kicks in and there, there's no turning back yeah. from getting to the bottom of helping your child. And again, um, I say some of the luckier women are the ones who actually have bruises because they can go to the police and say, this guy hit me and, you know, I need help. Mm -hmm. um, unless you have your evidence stacked up strategically into the gaslighting and blackmail and coercive control. You know, that's the other thing about the new Violence Against Women's Act that we are introducing to our country, the coercive control concept that is so you know it's criminalized in other countries and it's not here in the U.S. which is pretty mind-blowing like nobody even knows what that terminology that should be like layman's terminology um and it's not the mm -hmm. other thing is um I don't know if you're aware of this but the the UN's Convention on the Rights of the Child 
Only one of the UN's 197 member states hasn't ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and that's the United States. Wow. So I just ordered the book, um, Know Your Rights by Angelina and Amnesty International. And that to me was like, well, this makes perfect sense what we're experiencing here in our country because we're behind mm -hmm. on the nuances of domestic violence and helping our children. Well, yeah, no, um, 100%. I would love for you to just like list, I can keep them even in the show notes, but like, I would love to just, if you want to put, like put together, like kind of a list of the books that you're reading or have helped you. Um, I know we talked about some in the beginning as well, before we started recording. Cause I'd love to, I'd personally love to read them, but also like, I'm sure others listening would love to read them as well. Yeah. I, I'll be happy to help, help with that. Um, again, I, it's hard for me to get through one book. There's many books that people have recommended. And my my number one go-to is See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. And I've read it probably three times. Mm -hmm. She's got an Australian version and a US version. And I've read the Australian once and then the US twice. I'm on the second time. Another great book is called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. And that's an old book. I think all women who aren't mothers, who are just you know, young women need to read that book. Um, I wish I'd read it before I had met my husband and I could have maybe identified red flags. Um, yeah, this is definitely a vocational experience. Once you've been through uh, violence and abuse, you can't go back. You really just want to push forward and help others to understand that it happens so often to a lot of people around us and you know you can identify it pretty quickly and you know I'm sure that's why you do this work because it's a calling yeah so I'm just sorry I'm just I'm just processing everything that you said um and thinking about like just I think just the amount of <clears throat> like people who are experiencing this. I knew this was like, you're like looking back. I, I remember us messaging about this topic, but like for some reason going into it, I just like, didn't think about that. And so I don't think I like realized that this was part of your story. And then it all started to click as you were talking. And I was like, remembering texts that we had. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like unprepared. Um, I know. I, I mean, I agree. I didn't really understand. You. I I've because you're, discreet enough to not really uh you haven't just put it out there so I'm like hmm I think we might need to have a longer talk about what's going on yeah. um so I have supervised visits with my daughter I on Sundays I get to see her for seven hours and it's 315 dollars just for the supervisor and she has not seen her maternal family since 2019 at my father's funeral my dad passed away she was taken august 23rd of 2019 my dad passed away september 6th and the last time she saw her my mother and my brother her uncle was at my dad's funeral wow he will not let her back into our house he won't let her come back home she has a cat she has you know, her friends, 
her family um he hasn't he has not let our child see their family and come to their house for three and a half years and it has to be in public places only to monitor our, our conversations mm-hmm. you know perhaps our home would be a trigger for the truth and they would start talking again about the abuse they're just trying I think they've really done a great job of Stockholm syndrome on the baby yeah you know and it's going to be I think I think it's really going to be up to her to take him down at this point she's she was four years old when she talked about the abuse and now she's 10 and a half and if she hasn't forgotten it, she's trying to forget it. And at some point she's going, she's anything like me. She's going to turn into, um, you know, a rebel and take him down. Do you think that it's like still happening right now? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if, if she's like his mini wife or if he has just done a really good job of at this point, she is like, she's like turned against me. So I think she knows that I'm not safe from what she's been told and that I did something wrong, that I made a mistake, that I took her to the hospital too many times. I mean, over the past three and a half years, I've heard m- many different things come out of their mouth. Like, Mom, why did you take me to the hospital when I didn't need to go? Mom, the court is doing this to us so I can't see my family. And I've corrected them and said, actually, your dad could help see your family. And they say, no, that's not true. And we had to end a visit because they were so upset about um, even that statement. And that is the truth. You know, so I just need to really... I can't have a conversation with my child at this point. We are on such a surface level of connection, but we still have our, you know, primal, like mom scratch my arm and mom rub my hands and we could see a movie and snuggle and still have that bond. But the, even through therapy, our, my therapist suggests family therapy and the amount of gatekeeping coming from the opposing legal side, they don't want us to have therapy because they want us to stay apart because I think the truth is so, um, you know, it's going to be so detrimental in this case where once the truth is out from like a teenage perspective or adult perspective, uh, everyone's going to be held accountable and that's going to be really ugly. So it's just, um, it's a matter of time before the truth comes out really, in my opinion. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's only so much that these people can do to keep us quiet before, you know, um, this judge even threatened to put me in jail if I discussed anything that was uh, the therapist disclosed in the last court hearing, if it got back to our child and has taken it really um, personal and made this into a personal story for them 
the judge where uh, I've had, you know, a public defender say they're taking their own divorce trauma out on you. Like you're like the surrogate wife that he couldn't abuse. Mm-hmm. That's how bad it is. Yeah. Um, so I have a judge who's abusing me as well. So I'm, I'm, it's CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress. And as my therapist says, you are still being traumatized, actively traumatized. So, you know, it's like, I'm still in the thick of my abuse. I can't escape the abuse. It's turned into post-separation abuse and institutional abuse. And, um, again, leaning into prayer and the support system that I have, I'm, I am very lucky to have a massive support system, like mountains of support. And I'm not going to stop until this sees the light of day. Yeah. So what, like, where are you at now? Like, what are your visions and dreams now? Um, now that you're kind of, obviously I know that there's a level of like advocacy happening and learning and healing and growing. And then you said that you did that doula, those doula classes, like, but what's kind of, where are you at right now? I mean, ultimately it would be amazing to have a collective breakthrough in receiving some justice for all the other mothers who are going through this with their children, you know, to start a foundation, a healing foundation, whatever that looks like. Um, Obviously just having the freedom to live life. And, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm still not even divorced. I can't have a relationship. I would like to have more babies. I would like to potentially move because it's been so traumatizing to live in this small space where, you know, it's a, we're in a proximity where it's been years of ongoing trauma. So to be able to travel and um, have an open relationship with my child and be able to just mentally move forward with some closure. I'm looking for closure right now because it's, it's like an open wound. Right. And every week it's like the bandaid is ripped off it, you know, if not the sutures are ripped out and it's just like an open bloody wound because there is no peace when you don't have justice in this kind of case. Yeah. You know, I, like I saw in your profile recently, you have, um, male friends, you know, someone in your life, like, that's like what we dream about as normal humans to have a stable family and a partner and children. And that's kind of been robbed. You know, I started this process when I was 34 and I'm 40 Mm. and I've lost many years to, um, being in limbo and I going forward, I just, I just want my life to move on. And it's hard when you're in like a fight or flight 24 Mm seven to be able to to say like, okay, I'm at peace with not having any peace in my life. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you find peace in knowing that life is, is not infinite and someday it's going to be over. So try to find beauty in every day that you have to be here. I mean, there's something to be learned from this experience, but it is, it's pretty hard to be, uh, know your child's been like actively kidnapped and held hostage to try to like move forward and remain in limbo. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I have, I have a lot of dreams. I, you know, using one of my platforms of work as a level of being an advocate, you know, I have several jobs. I, um, couple, I have big dreams about, but, um, whatever I can find, um, to be most successful to use that as advocacy and to help other people. I mean, you know, you started a podcast. I do my work on the side. Like I told you, um, I do acting work and even speaking to people on, in my industry, like they're not aware of domestic violence and, um, you know, connecting with other artists to tell their stories and come together. You know, the Me Too movement has, has kind of failed. So we need like more of a movement for mothers. And really, I think my vision is, you know, as all of us, we're collectively coming together through our little social media networks, but um, to really crystallize and solidify our platform and have the experts to stand behind it, to really go up against the system and say like, all right, we're here. This is a black and white case of the previous case, right? And have have it just stop. This needs to stop. And I think the more that you get people talking about it, like we're talking about it, it's going to be a diagnosis. It's not just going to be some theory. It's going to be written down as history. Like this is a historical movement here where mothers are actually stopping this silent epidemic from continuing. Yeah. Because we're not going to take it. We're not going to silence our children. We're going to stand up for our children and stand up for ourselves and say enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I haven't had like the the like crystal vision of what that actually entails. I just know it's there, it's coming out and it's in the process of, you know, cells coming together. We're all like cells formulating an actual material object of defining this crisis, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. Um, what is one thing that you would say to someone who's listening as a tip? It can be a mother or just someone in general. Um, what's something that you wish that someone would have said to you that you can say to someone who's listening, who may still be in an abusive relationship or may still be fighting for their child who is with 
the who's you know underneath the authority of a abusive father or mother i would say that i should have followed up early way early on with getting orders of protection mm-hmm. of documenting um documenting the abuse early on and writing down the things that I recognized to be red flags at the time, letting, you know, instead of letting them go to really keep like a tight journal on what had been happening and a timeline and to organize a plan of action where it doesn't get drawn out in family court when it should be in a criminal court and to find ways to connect with law enforcement um, in the proper channels to where it doesn't just get dropped, where, you know, I wish I had several years ago followed up with law enforcement to make sure that they interviewed these doctors and nurses and not just left it up to them to do their job because they don't advocate the way that you would for yourself. You know, they're trying to I don't really know the intention behind law enforcement and why they don't do their job, but I wish I had been more um, vigilant about making sure they looked at the facts in our case rather than letting it go for so long and being passive. I was not active enough to you know, say you should be talking to these hospital physicians and etc. So also I have had uh, mentors that I know we are in network with who have helped other clients to bring criminal charges against their abusers and their children's abusers. And I had not had that guidance early on. If it had happened several years ago, I think my, my story would be different. to um, work with your local, you know, rape and incest groups to figure out a way to get the best help possible. I didn't call those groups um, to figure out how I could protect my child. I left it up to law enforcement and lawyers who also were learning in the process that this was actually a problem. So I think times have changed from you know, 2016 to present, it's almost 2023. I think that a lot more people are going through this and talking about it. But back in 2016, I did not know how to articulate what exactly was happening. And I should have had the the, the um, legal teams working on pressing charges immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And getting those orders of protection in place and not, I didn't trust that that would actually keep me safe. So I never followed through with it. I thought he would come home and kill me if he was served an order of protection at his job. I thought he would lose his job and then come home and kill the both of us. Yeah. I think it's such a tough place, like, because there's just, 
it's just tough when you don't know if like a lot of people don't know that they're being abused. And then by the time they realize they're being abused, it's almost like too late. It feels too late because they don't take the strategic steps to like, I think you have to leave strategically. I'll say that. Like, I think that like to stay out, you have to be strategic. Um, whether that's, you know, having a safety plan in place and a bag ready and a place where they don't know, or accumulating proof that what is happening is happening while you are like, personally, it can be dangerous. So I'm not saying to anybody listening to this, like to do this, but I'm saying like accumulating proof while you can still get the proof is going to be what is going to be heard. And often like your best bet in someone listening to you when you're out, because as soon as you're out, like what you have is proof, that's your proof. Like I think a lot of times, like, um, even just like people who are like abusers or, you know, molesters or whatever it may be, like they, uh, are very high functioning and they cover up things very well and they hide things very well. And so like when you're in it though, like you don't know, like you're not thinking, oh, I have to like, like be strategic about this or record this. Like, cause you don't even know you're being abused or you don't even, this could actually be like a real thing that this person's like truly like sexually molesting your child, because this is the person that you're married to and the person that you're sleeping in the same bed with. And so sometimes I think people are like, well, is this, how much of this is just like, maybe like he's not well in the head versus like an actual action or what am I like? You just, you don't even know what, we are, if what you're experiencing is the real reality. And so it's just really tough when you like walk out of it. And then like, especially orders of protection, I think can be a dangerous game because, uh, you see it on the news all the time. We see a lot of women circulating a lot of time who, um, file an order of protection. And then the next day that, mm-hmm. you know, husband or boyfriend goes and kills that person and kills the, kills that. Right. And that's the fear behind getting an order of protection is that they will come home and kill me or my child. And then that actually does happen. So, but I think what you just said about them being strategic and that's just how they're, they're high functioning. And that is the way that they function. They're already strategizing that this is going to come out. So they have their backup plan in their head already, where if you're not an offender, you don't think that way. So how would you have a backup plan? Because you don't know that this is actually happening. And, you know, then you're trying to put puzzle pieces together where they already know like the worst outcome potentially and are ready for backup to make excuses and you know reverse their victim offender um sorry I have this noisy cat um yeah so I think what you just said is a really really great point you're not thinking strategically because you don't even know what you're experiencing is truly what you're experiencing and um they're thinking in a way that they already know what they're doing is wrong and what they're doing is illegal or potentially, you know, going to put them in prison or in trouble. Um, and they know how to get themselves out of it. It's, it is very scary. I don't really have like a full safety plan for people who don't know, because once you find out it's, it really is like speaking a foreign language. Yeah. 
And I think people listening, you know, are probably in a, in a stage where like they didn't know what to do. And now they're in a place of limbo. Hopefully not, but it it's, there is no guideline for how you leave a, a child molester. Um, I think when I filed for divorce, I was so scared by this doctor, you know, shaking these papers in front of me, black and white, like this is domestic violence. And then, you know, on top of it, having a child disclose sexual abuse where I just hired the first attorney that I could meet with. And that person ultimately was fired because they said, I don't need to believe your child to represent you. And that was really uh, a slap in the face where I hired a new attorney who looked at the facts and said, this is domestic violence. This is sexual abuse. And, you know, that's a whole other story, but um, I didn't do any research before just jumping into filing divorce papers. I went straight ahead and just did it immediately like a gut punch. Mm. And even like the group that referred me to my first divorce attorney, they really didn't have domestic violence resources. So, you know, it is a systemic problem. There's a, a woman's divorce group that's not referring you to DV attorneys. So there are levels of mistakes that have been made where it's just kind of snowballed into a huge mess. And I hope that it's over in the near future. I'm super grateful that like you were, I don't know, willing to come on on such short notice and to share your story with me and unpack it. Um, I know that this is a topic that I have not yet aired on what was her name. Um, but it's been a long time coming. It feels like, because I know that it's a topic that I will continue to, um, (laughs) talk about and have more and more. Uh, I have a lot of quite a bit of moms who have gone through this and are going through this. Um, so I'm really grateful because I think that you and your story, um, it's paving the way for others who will, will come on. And I think it's going to start a conversation that, uh, is uncomfortable and it's one that many don't have, uh, but it needs to be had. And I think it's going to highlight maybe for people who are listening, who are walking through this now, um, it's going to, you know, highlight something within them. And so I'm really grateful for you being willing to come on and share this story. Um, guys, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, just like in the show notes, put the books that uh, Jane is recommending. That way um, you guys can have those as well and um, any resources as well that you just want to like list, um, feel free to just send them to me. And I'm going to end the episode probably around here. But um, yeah, just again, I'm thank you for coming on. I think this conversation is, it's tough for me, but I think it's um, one that is necessary and I'm really looking forward to like airing it. Cause I think other people are going to resonate with it. Um, and it's going to start opening up more and more conversations. Oh, well, I'm, I hope that I can help other mothers. Hey guys. So I cut off the episode here. Um, it kind of just continues on. Um, if this episode seems a bit spotty, it's just because, uh, you know, the nature of this conversation, there's 
a lot shared here and uh you know part of part of the podcast uh letting you in on kind of my own heart behind this is that I always offer an edit for each guest because uh while it can be time consuming uh sharing trauma and feeling like you have to have all the right words to say in an interview can be really stressful and challenging for trauma survivors correctly their memories and you know say it flawlessly that's pretty impossible and so um I always offer uh, that anything that's spoken in a podcast can be removed. Um, and so if you notice sometimes in episodes where it can be a bit spotty uh, like this one, it's because there's areas that have been removed uh, for safety and also just for um, yeah, privacy. Um, I hope that this episode uh, makes us think uh, more. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if that's kind of an odd phrase, but... I think uh, in the comfortability of our own like mundane moments, it can be challenging uh, to let our minds go there to this place of you know the reality that there are uh, there is an incestual uh, molestation happening within families, and I mean this is a topic that is very very dark and. Uh, tough to wrap our minds around but it's a conversation that I'm ready to have and open to have with uh, you know survivors and mothers and fathers who've experienced this in their own families so um, yeah I hope that this reaches you and, and I know the right people are going to listen to this and I'm so appreciative that you listened to what was her name um, if this podcast has impacted you in any way um, it would mean loads if you could uh, rate uh, the podcast you can just rate it on Spotify and then also write a review on Apple podcast and share this podcast with people who you think may um, you know need to hear it so again thanks for listening see you next week